Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us and welcome to our podcast at antiqueauctionforum.com. We hope you find this show entertaining and informative. This is Martin Willis and Phyllis Gall, and we're here uh, with Professor Andrew Burstein for part two of our podcast on Jefferson uh, Monticello. And how are you doing again, Andrew? Uh, hi, good to be back with you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Now, last time we were talking, uh, I believe we ended off with um, talking about letters. So if we can, we'll jump right back into that, and then we'll go um, off to talk about Monticello a little bit. A couple of things. Did Thomas Jefferson have a sense of humor? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Uh, there's very little in his collected correspondence that would lead you to feel that he did have a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. But um, fortunately, I've been able to dig a little deeper, and particularly in writing the new book, Madison and Jefferson, you have... Uh, uh, some anecdotes that are told by Madison after Jefferson's death. Uh, Madison was eight years younger than Jefferson, and Jefferson died, of course, on July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of his Declaration of Independence, and mm -hmm. Madison lived another 10 years. Mm. Um, and uh, there's one kind of quip that Madison told um, that gives a sense of Jefferson's sense of humor. And, and this is how it goes. Uh, in 1791, Madison and Jefferson took a uh, trip together to upstate New York. Uh, this is while Jefferson was Secretary of State under President George Washington. And, uh, you know, they met people along the way, and they stayed in, in country inns, and they, it's a, a three-mile-an-hour world, and they did a lot of walking. Mm -hmm. So uh, in 1791, as Madison is telling this story at a dinner party after Jefferson's death, they uh, met a man who was a, a smart guy, but he was very skeptical about the American Republic, about the idea of democracy. And so he said to uh, Jefferson, uh, that um, he thought that uh, it was better for the head of government to be someone um, like a king and that there should be a hereditary succession, uh, that that would you know, be a government that works better, that somehow more, uh, you know, the, the authoritarian government or the hereditary government is, is uh, uh, superior to a republic. And Jefferson, with a, with a wry smile, uh, turns to the guy and said that he had heard of a university somewhere in which the professorship of mathematics was hereditary. And that was all he had to say. You know, he had this subtle, very <laughs> wry sense of humor where he could, uh, and, and the, the term Madison used was a, it was a coup de grace <laughs> that, that, you know, Jefferson, with the, 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 the sweetest, politest voice, uh, could make his point in the sharpest way mm. and so I don't know what kind of a sense of humor you would call that Madison had had a much more 
uh, open, uh, almost vulgar sense of humor. He told off-color jokes. <laughs> Jefferson didn't. Jefferson was he, uh, his his private secretary uh, in uh, Paris, William Short, uh, wrote that Jefferson sometimes blushed when uh, in the company of men, you know, they'd be sitting around telling off-color stories uh, or you know, sexual humor. Um, Madison got off on it, and Jefferson was actually, uh, you know, somewhat red-faced about it. So uh, that, that, I think, kind of sums it up. Uh-huh. Um, do you, have you ever read any of his early letters, like in, say, uh, teenage years or anything like that? And did he ever write about um, his loyal, loyalty to the crown prior to uh, the movement? Well, uh, the earliest Jefferson letter that is extant is from 1760, when he was 17 years old, and he was about to go off to the College of William and Mary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, I have read letters from the early 1760s, when he's a college student, and those letters are some of the most expressive. And once again, you can find these uh, online at the Library of Congress website. You can see they've been digitized, so you can see them in his original handwriting. And Jefferson has a very readable handwriting, as, as you know, Martin. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, these early letters uh, between Jefferson and his college chum, whose name was John Page, uh, they're they're funny. They're um, they express uh, a common love of learning. But at the same time, they also express uh, their youthful sense of humor, uh, something that you know is harder to find in Jefferson's later letters. But uh, with Page, he would write, for example, he, uh, he'd say um, they they were both uh, amateur astronomers, and uh, Jefferson wrote once uh, to Page uh, that. Um, would banish him to some other planet. So, you know, they, they <laughs> joked with one another. And, and, and yeah, But mostly, you know, it's kind of newsy letters. Jefferson doesn't start writing um, politically until the 1770s. Um, he writes the Declaration of Independence at the age of 33. Mm. Um, uh, but there's nothing in those early letters to suggest adolescent rebellion. Mm. Um, and... Uh, uh, Except for the letters to John Page, they're mostly very um, uh, sort of conventional, and uh, you know Jefferson really hasn't become Jefferson yet. Mm-hmm. So the other question, uh, as far as his loyalty to the crown, um, like most of the revolutionaries, they were very cautious about what they wrote. They could be imprisoned uh, if they challenged the crown. So, mm-hmm. um, in fact, the reason why Jefferson was selected by the Continental Congress in 1776 to write the Declaration of Independence is that in 1774, he had written a pamphlet that made the rounds, that uh, reached the na- national leaders, and also made its way to London, um, which was sort of dangerous. And this was called a summary view on the rights of British America. And in that pamphlet that Jefferson wrote, there are a couple of lines that resonate the way his Declaration of Independence does, where 
he's addressing his majesty george the third directly he says uh, uh you know we take our grievances to you and lay them uh before your majesty uh, and and jefferson's exact lines are uh, with that freedom of language and sentiment which becomes a free people claiming their rights you know those rights are, are, are uh, the gifts of the laws of nature and not uh, mm-hmm. the gift of their chief magistrate. And, and then he goes from here to say to the king, let those flatter who fear. It is not an American art. So you see, you know, the power of his propaganda, mm-hmm. um, you know, where he's challenging the king directly. And when the members of the Continental Congress saw that Jefferson could do that. They said, oh, this is the guy mm-hmm. who uh, ought to be writing our official declaration of independence from, from Great Britain, challenging the king and explaining why we're divorcing the king and going our own way. But didn't they first choose Benjamin Franklin to write the declaration? Well, you know, uh, Franklin had been the emissary of the state of matter, the colony, uh, Commonwealth of Massachusetts, in London and had spent many years in London. He came back to the to America uh, in 1774 or 1775, I believe, just before the uh, just before Lexington and Concord. And uh, because of his age, uh, Franklin was born in 1706, uh, mm. and uh, you know he's. 35 years older, uh, sorry, 37 years older than Jefferson. So, you know, he's the grand old man of, of, of American politics and the first American ever to become famous abroad. You know, the colonists mm-hmm. were considered to be backward, mm-hmm. uh, country bumpkins right. as, as, as a people. And Franklin, you know, with his rustic look and, and you know, he pretended to be a, a, a you know, a, a country hick when actually he was quite sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the Continental Congress looked on Franklin the way they looked. I mean, this is the way their world worked. It was a world of deference. So you would want Benjamin Franklin to write something like the Declaration of Independence because of his gravitas, because you yield up to the older man. Uh, mm-hmm. Age is wisdom and experience. Uh, Jefferson was only 33. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, Franklin, as he explained it to Jefferson, did not want uh, to participate in writing anything where his work would be edited. He's, you know, he's right. beyond that. And Jefferson was young mm-hmm. and willing, uh, and uh, a, a, an eager patriot. And um, when he was selected to write the Declaration, uh, Franklin was one of those who helped read it over before it was officially submitted to the Congress. But Franklin didn't really have very much uh, input beyond that. Now, are there drafts of the Declaration, uh, the first drafts, are they uh, still preserved? There are, yes, there are two or three different drafts uh, in in Washington. Um, But, uh, so you see Jefferson's crossouts. Mm-hmm. And you see the process that he went through as he composed it. Um, and I think those are the only, you know, the, the, those early drafts, the, the ones we have, there may be some fragment of something that exists, but um, uh, the, the, those drafts that 
the government has are in the first volume of the published papers of Thomas Jefferson, which uh, date to 1950. Uh, and uh, uh, you can you can see in that, and again, it's in most every university library. You can see uh, in that volume uh, the, the the drafts that they have and the fragments that they have. Um, I doubt it. That uh, I mean, I think it would be unusual even for a senior scholar to be uh, given access to those drafts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell you, I, you know, when you read through the Declaration, you just. It just kind of blows me away that one person, 33 years old, could write something like that. It's just really, he was just an amazing person. Um, and you mentioned earlier that this pamphlet that circulated was uh, what got um, his uh, notoriety as far as they knew that he could write like that. Um, were there any? Was there anything after that that he wrote that sort of hit the same type of level that wasn't as important? Um, well, uh, you know, his summary view of 1774 was what put him on the map. And the Declaration of Independence was not celebrated, nor was his authorship known very widely at all, really? until he became president. Uh, the campaign for president in 1800, his supporters uh, used as part of the campaign literature the fact that he was the, the author of the Declaration of Independence. But uh, uh, throughout his life, um, his political opponents tried to minimize his uh, impact, uh, uh, even in the de- Declaration, saying that Congress had edited it so much that uh, whatever value it had at the time was owing to Congress's editing rather than Jefferson's original thinking. And Jefferson would probably have uh, said, too, uh, that he was trying to express common purposes and, and not to come up with something that was uh, of, you know, rep- represented his mind alone. Um, but to the question of uh, other than the Je- Declaration and the Summary View, um, he published uh, one book, and right. it's called Notes on the State of Virginia. Mm-hmm. It was published when he was in France in 1785, uh, and then uh, again in 1787. Uh, in fact, you know, uh, when I did the, the, the Ken Burns film on Jefferson, we were all, uh, all the talking heads invited to the White House. It was then the Clinton White House. Hmm. And uh, President Clinton began his remarks uh, that evening um, talking about uh, his ownership of a rare edition of Jefferson's Notes on Virginia, and I think it was hmm. the 1787 version, which uh, I once saw uh, online um, that that someone was selling, some antiquarian book dealer was selling for about uh, $12,000. Um, so I don't know exactly how many copies there are of the mm. 1787, but it numbered in the hundreds rather than mm. thousands. And uh, this work uh, has uh, a lot of, um, been given a lot of attention by scholars, partly because it's this comprehensive encyclopedic uh, history, natural history and political history of Virginia, uh, which he wrote initially as a response to a query, a set of queries by uh, a French representative in Philadelphia during the Revolutionary War who wanted to know more about France's Virginia allies. This is before the Battle of Yorktown. Mm -hmm. And Jefferson went on in there to just 
talk about all kinds of things, uh, the laws of Virginia, uh, the religious life of Virginians, and um, directly addressed slavery. And here's where Jefferson's mm -hmm. reputation took a real hit, because mm -hmm. he uh, was the first to really promote the idea of recolonizing, you know, emancipating slaves, but then recolonizing all of them, uh, no matter how much of an identification they had with the American community, recolonizing them back to West Africa because he thought that blacks and whites could not live together or else they would come to blows and it would be a violent race war uh, and, you know, many lives would be lost. Uh, and Jefferson shared in the racist sentiments of a majority of Americans who felt uncomfortable um, living in an integrated community. So um, he wrestled with slavery his whole life, and he, uh, uh, in his own time, uh, notes on Virginia and its uh, comments on slavery uh, came back to bite him. Especially, uh, you know, as as uh, abolition uh, grew as a meaningful social reform movement, and among scholars of our time, uh, Jefferson looks really, really bad. The scientific racism. I mean, he used he was talking about what were commonplaces then, but which are really hard to read now. Mm -hmm. uh, to to the extent that uh, you know he, he commented on uh, uh, the offensive odor. Uh, right. you know, that, that he felt uh, African Americans uh, had, or um, uh, their the, their limited intellectual capacity. Uh, so you know, this has done a lot of uh, a lot of harm to Jefferson mm -hmm. uh, in the American imagination. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, it's you know, it's true. It's all true. Mm -hmm. um, but I think Jefferson is especially tarred by this because he was willing to to put down those prejudices that were that were felt by a lot of people and and in his uh, in his cohort uh, but Jefferson of course we expect so much more of him uh, mm -hmm. because we read what he's capable of writing and and, and you know, how he appeals to the depths of the human heart and, and and the human imagination and so we expect that he would have pro progressive views but we must remind ourselves that he's an 18th century man and mm -hmm. a Virginia aristocrat to boot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, fascinating. We talked, or you mentioned a little bit about how he he was very expansionist and he believed in empire, especially, well, um, an empire for the United States. What do you think he would say about immigration in, in the United States today? Ha, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, you know, in, in his time... Uh, there was prejudice exhibited toward the Irish. So the Irish right. were sort of the, like the Mexicans are today, mm -hmm. where nativists are afraid that they will have somehow uh, a, um, uh, a harmful effect on, on community. And uh, it's, you know, it, it's as amorphous now as it was then. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea of Mexicans stealing jobs. Well, it was, you know, Irish people are, 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 are lazy and, and tend toward drunkenness, and uh, they're dirty, and we don't want them near us, and, uh, you know, plus they're Catholics. So, you know, the, uh, these prejudices are not, not well articulated, but they're, they're clearly quite visceral. Um, so, you know, Jefferson, he spoke 
to the ideal of immigration, but he was thinking of, you know, northern Caucasian types. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he wanted to see more um, more English, more you know, Dutch and uh, German and French people who he thought would assimilate easily, mm-hmm. and he thought that once the slaves were gone, uh, German peasants would take their place, you know, um, and, and so, uh, you know, once again, as I keep repeating, uh, drawing parallels to, between the 18th century and today, you, you, you can't expect, uh, uh, you know, the, the Jeffersonian calculus in a time when, when the Irish were seen as, you know, the, the, the outsiders, uh, you, you, you just, you just can't fathom what, what he would say about, uh, the, the the polyglot population of the United States today. I, mm-hmm. I, I haven't the foggiest idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe the parallel between China is still safer to make. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know, I think it was his quote, wasn't it, that uh, slavery was like holding a wolf by the ears? Um, yeah. Was it he who said that? And uh, so I know he struggled with slavery, and in his heart, I do believe that he probably, if he could have lived his life, the way he was living it, without having slaves, he probably would have done it. Um, I'm going to segue into this. Um, there's been a lot of controversy, well, since his day, about whether he fathered uh, children with uh, Sally Hemings or not. And I know they did some DNA testing. However, when I looked online, um, even that's not definitive. Uh, that's being argued. Is that Has that been settled one way or the other? Well, there's very little argument anymore. There, there are those people uh, who are just so afraid of the, the, the science here that they uh, have targeted uh, Randolph Jefferson, Jefferson's younger brother, who's 12 years younger, uh, and lived uh, about uh, 12 miles south of Monticello, occasionally came to visit Monticello. and. And since Brother Randolph has the uh, same Y chromosome, he is could technically be uh, the father of Sally Hemings' children. Um, but that's really pretty far-fetched. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, you know, I'll say that as a specialist in Jefferson's letter writing, uh, when I wrote my first book, I uh, didn't really examine very closely this. Uh, uh, this issue, um, but I did weigh in on it, and uh, uh, unfortunately, I, I did because um, I was going off of the Jefferson I knew, the persona that comes through in his highly moralistic letter writing. So, um, I I would say that I failed to shed my 20th century skin and look at Jefferson as an 18th century. Uh, Virginia aristocrat, mm-hmm. and so I privileged the epistolary personality over the oral history of the uh, African Americans who uh, whose whose families date back to 18th century Virginia. So DNA has uh, thoroughly convinced me uh, that uh, Jefferson did father uh, the children of his slave Sally Hemings. On the other hand. Um, uh, I, I wrote uh, a book called Jefferson's Secrets, Death and Desire at Monticello, which came out in 2005. 
And in this book, I spend a lot of time looking at the unanswered question here, which is what emotional relationship might have existed? Uh, we, you know, if we accept that there was a sexual relationship, what mm -hmm. emotional relationship might have existed? Mm -hmm. And here, uh, making up for, you know, uh, what, what I didn't do in studying Jefferson's epistolary personality, I looked at the books that he owned that, uh, and read, and, you know, some of them are dog-eared or, 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 you know, there are mar uh, marks on one page or another. Uh, the books in his library that deal with human sexuality, I went back and looked at a lot of his correspondence where he talked about human sexuality. Um, and in fact, there's, uh, there's one marvelous letter to John Adams. Uh, they, they've been discussing uh, a Greek lyric poet named Theognis. And uh, uh, no previous scholar had, had figured out what this conversation was really about, this mm. epistolary conversation. And it was about, uh, to sum it up, Jefferson was, was insisting that what Theognis was saying, what he agreed with, was that human beings have sex because they're physically attracted to someone. Uh, and even though we idealize, or they at this time idealized, having the best, strongest, smartest uh, breed with one another, to, to produce a, a sort of, a, you know, and Jefferson was always writing about blood lineage and how mm -hmm. important that was to Americans' national identity. Mm -hmm. um, he recognized that it was impossible. He acknowledged uh, that people uh, have sex because they're physically attracted to someone. Now, having said that, mm -hmm. does it mean that Jefferson was attracted to an African-American woman? And my answer to that is definitively that Sally Hemings was three-quarters white. She was described by a slave uh, in later years as mighty near white. Hmm. She had long, flowing hair uh, and apparently a um, uh, light skin. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the otherness of Sally Hemings, that is to say, mm -hmm. he, you know, the, the exoticism mm -hmm. of uh, an African-American woman that attracted Jefferson, who had written so much about uh, how unattractive right. African-Americans were, how they didn't mm -hmm. smell good and all those things. Mm -hmm. um, he was attracted to Sally Hemings because she was a, a, a young woman, um, 30 years younger than he was, Mm -hmm. who was very attractive, who was his maid, made his bed, did some sewing. She was in the house all the time. Her father, John Wales, was Jefferson's father-in-law. <laughs> that is to say, Jefferson's late lamented wife, Patty, was Sally Hemings's half-sister. Oh. So Jefferson took as his concubine and that was the word that Sally's son, Madison uh, Hemings, used to describe the relationship. Mm -hmm. Jefferson took her as his concubine um, because he was attracted to someone who reminded him, perhaps, of his late wife, mm -hmm. and also uh, because he was a man of privilege. Mm -hmm. And men of privilege in that time could have sex basically with anyone they wanted to. 
Mm-hmm. Um, as long as, you know, you kept it under wraps. You know how the English aristocrat traditionally worked, yeah, the, the upstairs-downstairs approach, that, that if uh, the master of the household uh, uh, had an illegitimate, a so-called illegitimate child with a maid... Uh, uh, servant living downstairs. Usually, the person with the, the servant was sent away. Mm-hmm. The child, you know, was was given an education. So the the master of the household, uh, the aristocrat, would buy off the girl he got pregnant, mm-hmm. um, and uh, his proper wife wouldn't, you know, hear of it, uh, see her, have to see her again, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Well, in it, that's kind of what Jefferson's world was. Mm-hmm. So. Um, <clears throat> Uh, John Wales, Sally Hemings's father, mm-hmm. who was white, mm-hmm. who was the father of Jefferson's late wife, mm-hmm. her, uh, his concubine was Sally's mother. And so Jefferson was kind of keeping it all in the family. <laughs> and remember, Monticello is this, is this closed community on a mountaintop um, where Jefferson is able to do as he chooses. And I think that uh, he was behaving in the way of a Virginia aristocrat uh, with a libido. Mm-hmm. And that this was as much about Sally's being his servant and a Hemings, mm-hmm. a favored family on that plantation. Mm-hmm. It was as much that as it was, uh, yes, she was technically black. Uh, she was, in fact, legally a slave. Mm. Uh, but we have to understand that there are a lot of nuances here and that slavery is not just the way uh, we know it from Gone with the Wind uh, or, or you know, 20th century conceptions of slavery. Uh, it was a complicated system. There was a lot of love, a lot of hate. There were white men who, who loved 100% African women. Mm-hmm and lived with them openly. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, you know, and, and then there were those who, uh, whose wives divorced them because uh, the husbands have taken up with a slave mm-hmm. um, and they, they feel insulted and humiliated. So there's, there's so much uh, yet to be understood about relationships within the institution of slavery. And I think, you know, Jefferson's, uh, uh, with Sally Hemings is a valuable uh, uh, tool for us to begin to understand better uh, how people communicated and what sort of anxieties they uh, lived with, how uh, they rationalized. I mean, hypocrisy uh, belongs to every generation, and this is one of the things that that makes it so wonderful to be a historian, is that uh, we don't have all the answers, Mm -hmm. and uh, we just keep Mm -hmm. doing research and communicating uh, and uh, hopefully making progress. Right, right. Um, well, here he always seemed to live quite a bit above his means, um, just like a lot of people do today. And um, a lot of people forgave him for that during his lifetime. But um, because he owed so much money, he was in such debt when he died. How long was his family able to remain at Monticello before they were forced to move out? Uh, his family remained at Monticello for a couple of years. Um, uh, he died $100,000 in debt, which is... Oh, my gosh. Which, which in today's dollars, yeah. pro- probably several million. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, one of the most tragic uh, episodes in the family's history 
is uh, that in selling Monticello, uh, they also auctioned off uh, the slaves. And, and Jefferson, mm-hmm. um, over the course of his life, owned between uh, 150 and 200 slaves at any given time, mm-hmm. um, a good many of whom were inherited from John Wales, whom we just talked about. Uh, so, uh, uh, whereas Adams uh, was fortunate that his wife Abigail was such a uh, an astute investor, um, he he lived a comfortable retirement. Not he wasn't a wealthy man, but he he lived a comfortable retirement. But Jefferson, like many uh, overborrowed uh, Virginia planters, um, uh, died in debt, and Monticello was first sold to a local druggist, I believe, but he only, and I think he was going to experiment with growing uh, mulberry trees there and uh, beginning a silk industry, and this didn't, mm-hmm. this didn't take. And a couple years after that, uh, Monticello was sold to Uriah Levy, who was a Jewish uh, Navy lieutenant, I believe. He was a naval officer. Um, and uh, uh, it remained in his family, in the Levy family, until 1923, when uh, it was given to um, uh, to the United States as a, you know as a national site. Mm-hmm. So the Thomas Jefferson uh, Memorial Foundation has uh, been in, in in charge of of uh, Monticello since 1923, and it's it's an absolute absolutely phenomenal place. Uh, mm. The uh, I was just there a couple of weeks ago, oh. and the new uh, education center and visitor center. Uh, they do such wonderful educational outreach, and the visitor center is is so uh, enthralling and captivating. Um, I can't even begin to describe what it has has there, but. Uh, there are so many ways to understand Jefferson and his world uh, there, and the house mm. contains so many original Jefferson items. Mm. Mm, I was going to ask about that. His collection mm. to um, uh, the the polygraph or right. uh, copy of his letters by mm-hmm. which he wrote copies of his letters, oh. um, and uh, uh, you know medicines uh, and. Uh, uh, the uh, the buffalo hide uh, that Western Indians had uh, uh, drawn on that, that hangs from the ceiling, uh, the the map of 1751 that Jefferson's father had a hand in uh, uh, putting together. Uh, it just there, the, the curator of uh, Monticello, uh, Susan Stein, has written a book about all of the antiques and all of uh, the uh, material culture that is to be found at Monticello. And uh, it's, it's just extraordinary, and I would uh, recommend uh, anyone who's anywhere near the area go and visit Monticello. Mm. Now, was that in danger during the Civil War at all? Yeah, uh, you know, because uh, it was Thomas Jefferson's home, uh, it, it, it wasn't really caught up in the war. Um, one of Jefferson's grandsons, in fact, uh, George Wyth Randolph, was an official in the Confederate government. Uh, but, uh, you know, Jefferson was adopted by both North and South. The Northerners could find, the, 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 the abolitionists could find 
uh, a Jefferson who wrote passionately about uh, human rights. And the Southerners, uh, the Confederacy, embraced Jefferson as someone who favored states' rights and uh, who in all likelihood, had he survived to 1860, would have been on the side of the Confederacy. Um, but uh, uh, Jefferson had become a, uh, uh, a national icon, and so Monticello was left untouched, but it did uh, deteriorate in the 19th century, and, and I've seen a photograph from, I can't recall if it's the 1850s or 1870s, either just before the war or just after, mm -hmm. but you could see uh, it is in disrepair, and uh, it speaks to the, uh, well, the challenges uh, that, that the, Mon uh, the Monticello uh, people uh, have uh, risen uh, to uh, since 1923, uh, that they have, they have done so much to transform Monticello so that uh, it resembles uh, what it was at the end of Jefferson's life. I mean, uh, uh, what's different, of course, is that uh, when he, you know, it's it's kind of it's polished now. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it looks it looks new. And mm -hmm. when Jefferson was there, um, you know, you 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 would have uh, seen uh, scuff marks, uh, mm -hmm. and you would have seen um, you know the fireplace would have been dirty and 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 smoky and. So you know, it it it's, it looks it, and feels like a, a modern museum, um, but you can certainly conjure what it was like for Jefferson to be sitting on his favorite Campeche chair in his parlor and uh, <laughs> uh, reading poetry alongside his granddaughters. And uh, uh, the guides do a, a fantastic job in explaining uh, just how Monticello was lived in. Uh, so again, I, uh -huh. I heartily recommend that uh, your listeners. Uh, Oh yes, go visit. Now I know they had a, they actually had an auction there on site to sell his uh, his valuables. Was there really a, a, a massive recovery effort to get these pieces back to the Monticello? Yes, mm -hmm. uh, that they have done a, a superb job in uh, uh, recovering many of uh, the sold Jefferson originals, but. Um, I'm sure not everything, but mm -hmm. they're still on the lookout. Uh, um, there's there's so much in the way of furniture, um, paintings, uh, sort of the, the essential, most visible aspects of Jefferson's uh, material world. They mm -hmm. have been able to uh, retrieve, Great. Uh, but um, uh, I'm sure there you know there there are things that. Uh, have either gotten lost or have, uh, you know, not been identified as, as Jeffersonian items. Mm -hmm. Did you find that he had good taste in decor? <laughs> well, I think so. I mean, I, you know, there's a cherry and beach floor that he had uh, inlaid, uh, put in wow. in 1804. Nice. And uh, I was privileged to uh, uh, have dinner at the house oh, wow. uh, a short time ago. Um, which was really unprecedented. I don't know how many times anybody has had uh, dinner uh, at Monticello since Jefferson actually dined there. Mm. Um, but there was a gathering of scholars and donors uh, last month. And, you know, I, I was sitting in this room and just looking down at this floor and looking up at the paintings, you know, a painting of uh, 
um, uh, Jefferson's uh, uh, grandson uh, uh, of John Locke, of Isaac Newton, mm. and uh, yeah, you know, it's like ha having dinner in a museum. It, yeah. uh, it was it was a sublime moment and really uh, truly surreal. Um, but you ask about his taste. Uh, some of the religious paintings that he collected while he was in Europe, um, to me, are a little bit. Uh, they're not. They're, they're not the best uh, <laughs> uh, examples of 18th century European painting. Mm. Um, there's John the Baptist's head, which was a little bit Halloweenish. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, you know, it's a matter of taste. And uh, what do I know? I read letters. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I could. I, I feel like I could sit all day and, uh, and talk with you about this. And I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface. But we've, we've run along uh, uh, pretty well here in time, and uh, um, it's been such a pleasure yes, speaking with you today. thank you so much. Okay, well, it's been fun for me, too, and I hope, uh, I, I, I hope that the, the folks who listen to your podcasts will, um, you know, find it entertaining. What else can I say? <laughs> yes, and also, just uh, for our listeners, the, the book that, uh, the recent book, uh, Jefferson and Madison. I'm sorry, what is it, the correct title for that? Yeah, Madison and Jefferson. I thought I saw it up on your website. I was just going to say that. It's up on our website. It's there to purchase. You just click on it, and yeah. you can purchase it. And yeah. thank you so much, uh, Professor Burstein. It's been a real, real pleasure. It has, and very informative. Oh, yes. well, I enjoy talking to you both, and I, uh, I hope our paths cross again. Yes, me too. Thank you. Well, this is Martin Willis. And Phyllis Gow. And we're signing off. Hello again. While you are on our website, antiqueauctionforum.com, Please stop by the forum message board, click on the community tab at the top of the menu bar, and you can join in on a topic, post your own website links, and do a lot more. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you enjoyed today's show.